Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. As The Appropriate Omnivore, I'm a big advocate of dairy, but I also understand a lot of people have issues with consuming it. A recent breakthrough in the dairy industry has been producing A2 milk, which many have found easier to digest. Like many real foods, this is going back to what food used to be. Traditionally, only the A2 protein was found in dairy until mutation occurring over the years, creating the A1 protein. Here to talk with me about A2 Dairy are fourth-generation dairy farmers Blake and Stephanie Alexander of Alexander Family Farm in Del Norte and Humboldt County. They crossbreed their cows to remove the A1 protein. Blake, Stephanie, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. It's great to talk to you again. It's fun when we ran into you at different conferences. We know we're very like-minded searching for that better nutrient-dense organic foods that are out there so that we can go to the farm instead of the pharmacy when we eat our foods. We're coming to you from our kitchen table here in, in uh, Crescent City in Del Norte County, where, where Stephanie and I live with three of our children, and then our oldest son runs the farm down in uh, Humboldt County, which is the original dairy that I grew up on, and Joseph, our son, is uh, fifth generation on. Yes, I always have a great time stopping by your booth and learning so much more about what Alexander Farm does, so it's a pleasure to finally have you guys here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. How did you first get involved with dairy farming? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I always like to tell people it's, it's kind of a career you inherit. We don't really, most dairy farmers are somewhat born into it. So we grow up working seven days a week and we just don't know any better. Um, and, and there's not a lot of uh, people from outside the industry convert and come into the dairy industry. And so both Stephanie and I were born and raised on dairy farms, uh, me in Northern California and her in Southern California. And so you know, it, it's a career we inherit. It's not necessarily a set of cows or, or a farm, but it's the career. And, and uh, Stephanie and I met at college, uh, going to school in Cal Poly, studying agriculture in San Luis Obispo. And uh, a few years later, we got married and we started in the dairy industry, renting a facility down in uh, Southern California in her home area. And we were actually in partnership with her parents for a few months as we started and then on our own for four years. And eventually bought a place up north here and and we're now in Del Norte County and Humboldt County in in extreme northern California on the coast. Yes and as a little girl growing up on a dairy farm in southern California I just prayed I'd marry a dairy farmer. I was that girl that didn't want to be in the house. I wanted to be out with the cows doing everything with my dad and my mom because I was the oldest in the family. So it was really exciting meeting Blake who had the passion for cows just like I had. Oh wow I love that story. (laughs) And when you started dairy farming, how is it different than it is now? 
Yeah, that's a great question, right? So we come out of Cal Poly, which is uh, one of the better undergraduate schools in the country for for dairy science and dairy husbandry, and and that was my major, and Stephanie's was ag business management. And and then we moved to Southern California, where we were on a confinement uh, farm, which would be considered uh, probably a CAFO. Uh, we're a little undersized, but it's still the same style. And you know, high yield production agriculture is is really how I would say that's what we were trained in, and that seemed to be the only uh, option. High yield production agriculture, you know, taking advantage of all the tools. And um, one of my good friends said that, you know, Polly teaches you how to how to be a herdsman on a large California dairy with an endless supply of money. And that means, you know, they teach you how to do everything right. Um, the reality is quite different, and so. We spent four years in that setting uh, with a desire to get out of Southern California and get back to, I, I guess, our roots, my roots, you know, with a grass-based dairy farm that was still conventional at the time, uh, but it was more pasture-based and, and, and focusing on green grass and cooler climates and, and, and uh, you know, cows that live outdoors. We moved here in 1992, and, and so we, we've been here, you know, for almost 30 years. In, in the setting we're in now. And what led to you eventually becoming grass-based farmers? It's the way we do it up here on the North Coast. Mm-hmm. We are blessed with the cool season climate where we can grow grass pretty much 365 days a year. We do get a lot of rain in the winter, so we have winter housing facilities. But still, get grass is green. It does Our average daily temperature differs from 11 degrees from winter to summer, so it's just a perfect cool season climate for grass. And so that was a default to be a grass-based dairy farmer when we bought our ranch here, which is how Blake grew up. He just happened to experience how I grew up a little bit during our first four years of marriage. Like we talked about in the open, one of your big things is offering A2 milk. How did you first discover A2? When we started really learning about grass-based genetics and watching our cows graze, we looked to New Zealand because New Zealand is a grass-based dairy country. And in getting their periodicals and learning about the Kiwi genetics, we came across the studies from the A2 Milk Company in a book that was written in 2007 called The Devils in the Milk, which that devil is referring to the A1 protein um, by Dr. Keith Whitford. And really learned a lot. And basically, one of the first lines I read in the book was, goat milk is A2. That is why people who who cannot drink dairy from a cow can drink goat milk. And it just made perfect sense that there was something wrong in cow's milk. And then we dug into it. And so we started testing our own herds, sending hair samples to New Zealand to see their DNA. You get one, it's A2A2. You get one from the mother, the dam, and one from the father, the sire. And so we would get genetics from New Zealand and make sure they were A2A2 genetics so that we could be A2 in our herd. Interesting about the goats. didn't know that. Yeah. I would just add that all mammal milk is A2. Wow. And that's what we learned through the book and, mm-hmm. and through our studies in the last 10 years. And so including breast milk. So we all, you know, we're born into this world, uh, you know, with the expectation that we would drink A2 milk. And the A1 devil in the milk is a mutated gene. So it's not really something that was intended to be there. It just simply change. You know, we're, we're simply farmers and, and trying to explain the story as, as well as we can, but there's a histidine where there was supposed to be a proline in this amino acid chain, 
And so because of that histidine, it doesn't break down and it creates a little chain of amino acids that won't break down and it gives us digestive issues. Wow. So that's how we understand it. So what do you see as the main advantages of A2 milk? It's digestible. It breaks down naturally in your body. It's what your body is supposed to drink since we know breast milk is A2. Um, also, the advantage is there's people out there that deal with autoimmune disease. And when you got this foreign protein in your system, in your gut, and it crosses your gut through maybe leaky gut symptoms you might have or, or just all the other processed foods you might be uh, eating, that now you have this foreign protein going all through your system and the doctor doesn't know what to do. And it's about the reaction, the inflammation that your body's going through because you're eating this foreign protein. Yeah, I, I would say it as simple as this, that, that little histidine that I mentioned, you know, it gets in your mouth and it makes phlegm. And so there's this immediate response from your body saying, hey, I don't really like this. And, and so that's why, you know, as we raise our kids and whatnot, uh, kids get sick and you pull them off of dairy because you don't want them to have a cold and, and extra phlegm in their, their system. Yeah, the inflammation. Right. And, and so it, it's kind of that simple. You know, the other piece of this that, that really got us going was is we learned that, you know, two-thirds of the world's population believes that they're lactose intolerant, meaning they can't do cow's milk. And, um, you know, most of that is self-diagnosed. And it's really not the, the milk sugar. It's not the lactose that is the problem. It's most likely this protein, which totally made a lot more sense to us. And, and we believe that. And so... We kind of just challenge people with the concept that, hey, did you, did you drink breast milk? You know, were you okay then as an infant? Well, then, you, you know, you really aren't lactose intolerant because that breast milk came with lactose. So it's probably this mutated gene that's causing the issue with most dairy. And we find that to be true anecdotally with uh, you know, consumers that drink our milk and say, wow, for the first time I can have dairy again. Mm-hmm. So instead of lactose intolerance, we should be talking about A1 intolerance. Exactly. That's the issue. And I know with A2 milk, it's the growing sector of the dairy industry, but I would say it's still relatively small. I've seen a couple others, and I know that a number of them, they're neither organic or grass-fed. Yours, you have both with your dairy. Do you also see those an advantage? And would you say that if an A2 isn't organic and or grass-fed, you don't get all the advantages of it? Uh, I I don't think we would say that. Certainly there are attributes that we bring to the table through our products that that they don't. But the original company that started in New Zealand, again, at Lincoln University, where Stephanie was mentioning earlier, this Keith Woodford, you know, developed the knowledge and, and the understanding. You know, it was brand new to us dairy folks. We just didn't know. And, and so they that that company started. It's called the A2 Milk Company, I believe. And, and you know, they're now selling milk in Australia and the United States and China and, and maybe some other countries as well. And they've gotten really big. And so, you know, on one hand, we're riding on their backs with the A2 organic version, um, you know, because we were sitting here for 20 years as organic farmers and, and 12 or 15 years we knew about this A2 gene. And we couldn't find a, an A2 uh, processor uh, or market to uh, you know, buy our milk and sell it and bring it to the consumers. So six years ago, we decided, what the heck, we'll just go do it on our own. And, and so that's what we've been doing for the last five years is bringing a, a version of A2 milk organically primarily to the West Coast and, and now nationwide. And so on the grocery store shelf, 
there, a consumer is going to look and, and see a product called A2 Milk, and that's an option. But we're a product that's called A2 Organic Milk in that we're going to offer something more and something better, something um, no hormones, no antibiotics, no anything that would do harm to the body or and through the processing. So we have something that if a consumer is looking for a reason to come back to dairy and they're concerned about what is in dairy, we're an answer to that quest. And because our cows are on grass and we our product has higher percent butter fats and the goodness is in the fats, the goodness and the nutrition is in the fats, and also any chemicals that would be in the grasses, any protective factors that you want in your body, it's going to be in the fat. So we want that fat to be as clean as possible and as nurturing as possible. And that's what we offer to the consumer. So it sounds like what you're saying is in addition to having the benefit of using A2 cows, the use of grass-fed and organic are other advantages that give different health benefits of your product. That's correct. When you see our farm and you see the cows grazing, that's the way it was done for thousands of years. And our milk has that old-fashioned flavor. It has that nutrient density, higher protein, higher butter fat. And that's from the old-fashioned genetics we're choosing, the genetics that have not only the A2 protein, that's the correct one, but also that the fact that the cows are on grass our cream, when it rises to the top, it has that yellow hue. That's a sign of that grass-fed goodness. Yeah, and uh, there's two points I really want to make right now. And and one is we are a high-fat dairy company because we clearly understand that the the nutrition comes through the fat. And and, uh, what Stephanie's talking about is that carotene coming out of the grass and the the omegas coming through. And so we're trying to supply uh, an offering to people that they really can't get anywhere. And so some of our milk is 100% grass-fed, meaning that those cows don't get any grain in their diet at all. And, and that's our green label. And, and we that's kind of the, the cream of the crop, if you will, from our offerings. And then that's our bottled milk. Um, we have bottled milk here on the West Coast with a shorter shelf life. And and then we also have been able to bring um, a longer shelf life product to the market this year. And, and we are now nationwide with some uh, two cartons of milk, a, a 2% offering and a 4% offering. Uh, and then in our bottled milk here on the coast, we have a 6% butterfat offering. So, so, you know, we're trying to kind of walk in the talk here. The other point I wanted to bring up is everything we are doing is truly, we believe farming the way uh, God intended, the way nature intended. You know, in the 90s, I used to think about being organic and and realized that, you know, how strange and how weird, it's not what they taught us in college. And and then by the end of the 90s, as we're converting to organic, I realized at some point, wait a minute, I don't have to be embarrassed. All I'm doing is farming the way my great-grandfather did or even my grandfather. It was kind of my dad's generation as I was a kid uh, 50 years ago that really got into this high-yield production agriculture and using all the chemicals. And and so, you know, here in the United States, we've basically been the leaders in in chemical agriculture, if you will, and it's been super profitable and productive. Um, However, now with the understanding we have of soils and, and, and nutrition, you know, we're starting to push back on that. And, um, you know, that's really the big picture. So as, as we talk about being organic and being A2, these are, this is the way nature intended. It's not us that are creating this. We're not creating something. We're just trying to remove all the man-made 
manipulation along the way and offer what you know food was truly intended to be. Right. When I look at A2, you know, I say, well, this is kind of a new thing on the market, but in a way it's really not a new thing. It's it's very similar to what organic farming is, if it's just going back to the way that all farming once was. Right. Right. Yeah. And if, if we would have had a DNA understanding of the cattle industry, you know, a hundred years ago and, and even beyond that, when maybe this mutated gene happened, you know, we would have eliminated it immediately. And, and, and now it's, it's quite prevalent out there. And, and so, so, um, you know, it's a big undertaking to convert, uh, you know, all these herds across the country and across, around the world. So at least we now have the knowledge and understanding. And so I, I think the conversion will happen. It's just going to be, it's going to take time. It's going to take a couple decades. Yes. So we've talked a lot about the myth of lactose intolerance and how it often has more to do with the A1 than the lactose. What are some other myths about dairy? The one I want to start with is kind of backwards here, but you know, the, the conventional dairy industry would say the A2 concepts that we're now talking about would be a myth. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that, that's not true. Um, there is scientific data to back up what we're saying. And, and so you know, we're, we're quite proud of that and we're aware of that. Um, it's just not common knowledge yet, and 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 so we we hope that people will do some research and and continue to learn, and and of course we hope that our conventional counterparts will also learn. I think the biggest myth I would bring up in the dairy industry is is that cows get um, a bad rap in terms of uh, producing methane and being part of this global climate problem that we have, and and uh, you know greenhouse gases and global warming you know just in general um, I, I know that you know we have a lot of bison here in the United States uh, the American buffalo you know that population was probably larger than the dairy population that we currently have of about nine million cows dairy cows and on methane there's a 10-year shelf life or half-life it's referred to and so every 10 years the methane uh, disappears or you know fizzles out and so what we're making new on an annual basis isn't any more than we had 10 years ago. It's probably actually less uh, because we have less ruminant animals uh, in the United States. So, you know, th those basic numbers, I get that from uh, scientists at UC Davis, and, and I believe those numbers because they absolutely make sense. So I think that's a myth that we need to dispel. Um, the other thing, oh, Stephanie's got one. Well, one of the myths is that dairy's not good for you. And that's what we're doing is bringing people back to dairy. It is good for you. I hear the comments all the time that, well, a cow wings its calf, so therefore we shouldn't be drinking dairy any longer as well. And there's a lot of foods out there, fractionated foods they're trying to put together, and they cannot match a glass of whole milk. The nutrient density in a glass of whole milk, it is one of the superfoods. And it's sad to eliminate it from somebody's diet, especially children, or even that fat is bad for you, so let's put children on 2% milk um, that the doctors used to recommend. And we need that nutrition. And so those are a couple myths that I think that we're dispelling immediately with our A2 organic milk. And also, you know, dairying the way we dairy is absolutely good for the environment. And um, as, as we get into maybe the regenerativeness of what we do and, and, the, and the management of our soils across the United States, cattle are a really important piece biologically to, to that system. 
and I, I think there's a lot of uh, environmental movements that don't fully understand that yet. All very good points. I love that you bring up the methane effect. We talked about that on the podcast last week with Nicolette Han Nyman, and so that one you can find on any of the podcast apps and also my website. Great episode to listen to, as well as she just released a new edition of her book, Defending Beef, which talks about the myth of methane. So I strongly recommend both of those. So yeah, and also she does talk in her book about the myths of saturated fat. So yeah, all very good points. I think another myth that milk needs to be homogenized, and I know that that's something that your milk is not. Correct. Yeah, we our, our bottled offering here on the West Coast is not. We, we chose cream top, and we also chose a, a kind of an old-fashioned pasteurization process where it's vat pasteurized and kind of heated slow and cooled slow over uh, about an hour period. Um, you know, it costs more to do that, and uh, but we believe that it was kind of keeping the nutritional goodness uh, intact and the proteins intact in our milk. And, and so we chose that option. As we went nationwide, uh, we had to, you know, seriously look at a, another processing system. And, and so we chose a, a neighboring processor to help us with this uh, extended shelf life product that we offer nationwide. I think it's got all the nutritional goodness with just a different pasteurization process. And consumers used to be real concerned about the pasteurization process, and that seems to be less important to them. And so homogenizing the milk is really just to make it uh, more kind of user-friendly, if you will, so that people don't have to remember to shake their carton and don't have to, um, you know, stir in the cream. And, and so we do both, and um, we don't get pushback from either side, really. Yeah, I mean, we at our kitchen table are that consumer that, that drinks our that pasteurized, cream top, non-homogenized, 100% grass-fed milk. That is our, our cream of the crop, like Blake just said. Um, but consumers have different expectations today. And the other thing, if we were to market and sell to just the crowd that wants the best of the best, we wouldn't survive financially. <laughs> right. So we, we got to get our milk out there. We got to get on shelves. And, and it has to have shelf life, too. And and that was the launching of our um, UHT milk. Yeah, I, 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 I would put it like this to relate to consumers and listeners right now. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. once sitting down having lunch with this, uh, this young lady, a young mother who is a lobbyist uh, uh, for Farm Bureau. And I was there on, on behalf of farmers across the nation. And she said, wow, if I could get your milk here in Washington, D.C., I really don't care what process it took to get it here. And that was probably four years ago, and now we've got milk in Washington, D.C. And so it's that kind of concept. You know, we're, we were the only A2 organic option in the United States here three years ago, and we had to figure out, you know, how do we reach out to get this across the country to more consumers? And so, yeah, there's some compromises sometimes, but I don't think there's big nutritional compromises. And we have a lot of consumers celebrating and let us know that they can finally drink milk again. And that yeah. warms our heart. Me too. And, you know, it was a thing of before I discovered all of this, I believed a lot of the things that they said about milk. Yeah. And <laughs> when researching it, realizing, well, you know, the uh, lactose intolerance is almost a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, absolutely. We agree with you. And, yeah. and I will make the note, I would say 80 to 90 percent of people can drink our milk. There are still those that truly are lactose intolerant right. and they need some sort of lactase to digest milk until their body finally 
gets milk back in its system and grows that lactase enzyme in their gut. We've given people our raw milk kefir and they're lactose intolerant and then just that kefir inoculating their gut brought that lactase enzyme back, it seems like. I don't know scientifically how that worked or anything, but they're able to digest dairy and eat cheese pizza again and things like that. Yes, my frequent guest, Monica Ford, she originally couldn't handle any kind of milk due to her lactose intolerance or, or what she thought it was. So then she started drinking raw milk. And now, as she explains, she can even have the pasteurized dairy some of the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we've, and, we've seen a lot of that. Yeah, and on that note, I have had, uh, we have had customers that have told us that they drink raw milk and can digest it just fine but they had an autoimmune disease. And when they dropped the raw milk and started drinking our milk, the autoimmune disease disappeared, the eczema disappeared, and the dark circles under their eyes. So maybe there was that sensitivity to the A1 protein that really was the issue, and it wasn't the lactose that they got digested through the raw milk. So that inflammation was still happening in their body because the raw milk had A1 protein in it. I would just add to that for your listeners that, you know, raw milk is unpasteurized, which means it wasn't heated. And, and the heating process, we know, damages enzymes at about 118 degrees, and all pasteurization is well above that. And so those, those natural enzymes that are still present are, are what allows people to, you know, maybe do raw but not pasteurized milk. And then what Stephanie just said is, you know, A2 pasteurized milk might even have worked. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know currently the system with raw milk is it's legal in certain states, but not all. And it's also not available to be sold across states. But a state such as California, it is legal there. Have you thought all about making a brand of raw milk available just in California? Yeah, we've certainly thought a lot about that and played around with those ideas a lot in the past, 10 years ago or more. And um, there's a few counties in California that it's not legal in. And one of those happens to be Humboldt County, my hometown. And, you know, it's just a difficult uphill battle. And and there's still some potential dangers that come with raw milk that are, are concerns that dairy farmers and consumers need to be aware of. Yeah, growing up on the farm and our children, we drank raw milk. Children on farms, they get the immunity to the bacteria that might be present that pasteurization kills. And so we have a society now that has a sterile gut. They don't have that immunity. So when you're giving them a glass of raw milk as a farmer, there's a little bit of fear that, oh no, what if that bacteria got in there? What if something wasn't 100% clean correctly? And we're not, Blake and I are not doing the milking ourselves any longer. So, you know, you're depending on everything going right. And so I, we don't want to have that unfortunate thing happen where somebody gets sick on raw milk. We know we are guaranteeing a safe product because we are going through the pasteurization process. And we also know in our, our heart and soul that it's the best product out there with the regenerative, the organic, the A2, the grass-based goodness. Sure. So as we talked about earlier, A2 is, or at least milk that's specifically called A2, is a rather newer concept to the market. Do you see A2 milk eventually catching on with other dairy farmers? Yeah, I I, I believe it is. Um, Certainly all organic farmers are are more aware of it. And then there's uh, quite a few conventional farmers as well. However, the dilemma that we were in eight years ago or so where, okay, we've got an organic uh, or an A2 supply, Now, how do we find a processor that's willing to segregate that milk as it comes into their plant and put it into a bottle and, you know, deliver it to a consumer 
you know, and not blend it with some A1 supply. So the processing is really the huge bottleneck. And so, you know, it's going to take a while for, for that piece to develop. It is developing and, and it's happening. Um, we've got a few other friends that are, are now producing and selling some A2 milk around the country. And I expect to see more of that. You know, there's a, a fairly large organic dairy in Colorado that's making some A2 milk uh, into Costco and, and you know, we're seeing more of that. It's just going to, like I said earlier, it's going to take a couple decades to really catch on. And it's processing that's going to limit that. Yes. And yeah, I agree that over time it'll catch on. And another part of uh, organics, which has really caught on, is organic pasture-raised eggs. And along with dairy products, Alexander Farm has some of the best organic pasture-raised eggs. Tell us a little bit about your poultry practices. Oh, well, sure. thanks yeah. for asking. That's, that project is a joy, and I say project because our kids, we have five of them, the oldest were junior high, and we went to a farm in Pennsylvania that we wanted to learn from and didn't know we'd run into their chicken poultry operation from pastured organic eggs that they were producing. So as a way of raising kids, we started that at home in 2005 and started selling at farmer's markets, started selling it in Humboldt County, and, and then Whole Foods found us. So Two years later, we're in Whole Foods. And so our chickens now, we have about um, 30,000 of them, and we have 18 coops. And so there's about 2,500 in a coop. And we move those coops twice a week. And the chickens have access to green grass 365 days a year. If it's raining, they can go under the coop, but they are outside. Their waters are outside, so they all go outside. And you can really tell the eggs that have um, the chickens are eating the grass, the dark yolk, and there's just a taste to them that's just incredible. So we love our chicken project. It really taught us about marketing. It taught us about distribution. It taught us about personalities of the back room and stores, and it's been a joy in our kids. We call it the Alexander Kids because it was kids starting it, and a couple of years ago, the kids said, let's change the name and take off kids, and Really, in every community, it's about kids. Let's keep telling the story about kids and raising kids and giving them responsibility and teaching them work ethic and character. Yes, when you talked about the kids, that made sense to me then why I see it in the supermarket called Alexander Kids. And it makes a lot of sense to me because actually mm-hmm. eggs are one of the earliest foods I remember enjoying as a kid. So mm-hmm. yeah. that yeah. resonates with me. Number. Yeah. And, and I would like to maybe just add to that. And, and so again, we, we jumped into that project and for us, it was about raising kids, yeah. not trying to market eggs <laughs> and it worked. And so while our kids were in high school, we, we were about three to 4,000 birds. And then, and then they all went to college. And as they started coming home from college, we, we then, you know, put a business plan to ramp up. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we have a system that can handle, um, you know, like Stephanie says, we're at 30,000 birds now, but we can go to 40 or 50 as the market develops. And and we, we have a very authentic uh, pasture-based system where the chickens are on grass. We, we move their mobile coops two times a week to a new pasture, new grass pasture. Um, we offer them some grains uh, so they have free choice feed. And so the results of what we're doing makes a super large egg because we're not limiting the, the chickens in any way, shape, or form in terms of production or feeding or, or anything like that. And so we, we just make a high percentage of jumbo eggs, and so we offer those in a six-pack and a 10-pack, and, and then we have our extra-large regular eggs in, in a 12-pack and an 18-pack. And it's just been a lot of fun because 
our eggs are unique and different. We used to think eggs were eggs, and, and now it's hard for us to eat someone else's eggs. Right, and it was through Sally Fallon and Weston A. Price Foundation that we learned the goodness of grass-fed milk and, and the properties of your animal eating grass and what that does to the nutrient density. And therefore, eggs, she also taught us. Um, and so that got us home wanting our, because we have chicken coops, just a couple that we were getting eggs from, and that got us thinking that, oh, let's take this old hay wagon and make it into a portable chicken coop because we wanted that nutrient density really for our own family. And we had a little farm store at our farm, and so we were sold them at the farm store and farmer's market. Eggs are a lot of fun, and I visited a number of farms, and something that I've enjoyed on a number of them is they allow when people do the farm tour to actually get out and go into the chicken coops and start collecting eggs from around there and putting them into the cartons for them. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, neat. yeah. We really encourage consumers to come see our farm and mm-hmm. visit our farm. We yeah. we have self guided tours. We you know we let them walk and touch and get involved in everything. You know, a lot of farms are really into biosecurity, and um, I think the organic principles are, are generally uh, that the way we understand them is we expose our chickens to everything so that they can then in turn build their immunity system. And so as we move forward, we don't have to be concerned about a lot of uh, issues that, you know, a, a normal chicken house that's all enclosed and, you know, would be concerned about. We do have a biosecurity program at the egg ranch, and, and you know, there's some, some basics that we have to be careful of just because of the markets that we choose to sell into. But in general, you know, again, I'm just going to go back to everything we do is a very old-fashioned approach. Yeah, and then at our little farm store, we have our, our dirts, checks, double yokers. They're all in a basket, and so people basically pick their out their six-pack or their 12-pack oh, wow. or 18-pack themselves out of the basket. Yeah. Well, I need to travel up north to Humboldt yeah. uh, and visit your farm sometime. Yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah, and you're welcome anytime. We have extra bedrooms now that the kids are all grown. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, so... Something that both your eggs and your dairy have is the regenerative certification. What was involved in getting your farm to become regenerative? Well, let me start with that, and I'll have, and Blake definitely is great at that answer too. And we feel like our regenerative story started when we bought our ranch and looked at our place and went, wow, we're the environmentalist here. We have so much beauty, and we could just make it even better. And so early on, 25, 28 years ago, we started fencing off the riparian areas, the creeks that go through our farm that maybe were even just swales in the field and start planting trees all around it. And then at the time, Blake got really interested in soils and soil testing way before we went organic 22 years ago. And so he became this soil and grass enthusiast and agronomist who we befriended was teaching Blake a lot about how to make better soils, which made better grasses. And then with our organic practices and learning about our nutrient water and the potential it added to the soils and then our compost program we do, which we'll get into later, we were just doing all these practices. And then regenerative, the term came about and people came to us and told us about their regenerative programs. Sure. And then as that happened, and I, I would say that was about three years ago when, when a couple of uh, groups came to us and, and, and um, I guess because of other connections. And, and so that was the Regenerative Organic Alliance and, and then the Savory Institute, which was ultimately Alan Savory's project. Uh, and Alan's just an incredible guy. And I would look him up on a TED Talk if you all have a chance. Oh, yes, you should. And that's one of the most viewed TED Talks. 
Ah, yeah. Oh, awesome. Cool. Yeah, we just love Alan. We had the opportunity to talk to him uh, one-on-one here just a couple of weeks ago, and it's just a real thrill. So anyhow, those two groups are now looking worldwide to start this regenerative uh, seal or program, and, and we became pilot farms for both groups. Um, you know, one used 22, I guess, farms around the world, and we were one of those. And then we had our daughter, Vanessa, really take charge of that and communicate with both groups. And, and so, you know, for the last three years, she's been spending a lot of time understanding and learning and helping them write the rules and, and adjust the uh, concepts. And so, yeah, we are regeneratively certified by both groups and, and our, our milk that came out across the country uh, you know, was the first regenerative dairy in, in the world, as, as we understand it. Um, you know, these groups would say that we were, one of them says we were the first regenerative farm in the world, uh, you know, certified. And so, you know, that's a real neat honor. And part of it was because we were pushing a product across the country and wanted to get certified. Our grass-fed, our 100% grass-fed, which is our green label out here on the coast, is the one dairy that is certified by both groups, and you know that's super unique. Uh, we will be coming out with a, a green label offering nationwide uh, next year in, in January, February, and so we're real excited that Whole Foods has invited that product in, and really looking forward to that. And I love to tell people when we introduce ourselves that there's a bald eagle nest behind our house out in the field. There's 250 to 300 Roosevelt elk grazing our lands. There's coho salmon flowing through our streams. Oh, and the frogs, the incredible amount of frogs in our creeks. It's just amazing. And the otters and, and the migratory waterfowl that come through our ranch. It's just an amazing place. And by the way, we are dairy farmers. And that is all part of that regenerative story of building it and they will come, building the soil organic matter and feeding the the right microbes with the live foods that we give them and doing no harm anywhere. So everything we're doing is about building life. And just like your listeners understand, health begins in the gut of a human. Health of the soil begins in the soil. Health of the plant begins in that soil. And so our whole area is just, a piece of heaven here and we are just helping enhance that with our regenerative practices and i think that gets into another myth that people make about dairy and about cattle is that it destroys biodiversity and you prove the exact opposite that actually when cattle raising is done correctly it actually improves the biodiversity yeah yes yeah so Maybe let me touch on that a little. And, and you know, I, I learned this from Alan Savory when I met him in the early 90s. Uh, I had a chance to spend a day with him. And it was a phenomenal experience. And, and, and so, you know, he, he wrote a book uh, called Holistic Management back then. And, and I, I had read that and just kind of fell for it. In a good way. In a super great way, yeah. And so what, what it is is, you know, around the world we have desertification, and, and so plants drying up and ultimately soils drying up. And uh, as Alan said to me that day, as we were walking in the sands of the beaches of uh, Santa Barbara, he goes, there's a reason they're fighting in Afghanistan right now, or Iraq or Iran or wherever we were back then in the 90s. Um, but as cultures lose their agriculture and their systems which supply food and, and health, you know, then then there's fighting and there's, you know, a a battle for resources. And so as I started to understand that and think about our soils and and we learn about biology and all this incredible microbiology that us farmers have under our feet and under our soil, 
we need to learn to honor that and we need to learn to understand it and, and realize that you know, our job as caretakers of the soil is to just stay out of the way and don't do anything that harms that incredible population of biology. And so then once you understand it, you can start to do things that really uh, treat them well and feed them appropriately with compost and other nutrients that aren't going to be abrasive to them. And so a lot of our harsh chemical fertilizers uh, damage and, and even kill um, biology. And, and so it's hard to have soil without biology that's going to grow a healthy plant. It will grow a plant that may be green and tall and yield a lot, but it won't have this deep array of nutrition to it. And so that's what we're talking about when we, when we actually get into regenerative and what that ultimately means. I would like to just say that to your readers and listeners that we simply need to understand that biology and then do things that improve soil development, which you know, the term regenerative means we are regenerating soil as opposed to degrading and letting soil um, erosion happen through wind and rain and flood. And, and so as we build the biology, they in turn build the organic matter in the soil. And that's a simple thing to measure. And as organic matter increases, which we've done on our farms here um, on the dairy, basically from 2 to 3% organic matter 20 years ago to now we're in the in the tens and even up to 15% organic matter, half of that organic matter is carbon. And so now we have sequestered carbon from the air, from, from CO2 in the air that we've taken and, and converted, you know, these sugars into carbon in the, in the soil, which then grow soil. And so literally our soil, our fields might be getting taller every decade you know, by an inch because we're adding more organic matter to the system and we're sequestering carbon. And so this is ultimately, I think, a solution for global warming and greenhouse gases. And if we could understand this as farmers and, and lean in this direction, you know, it, there's just so much potential there. It is. It's something which I would say is needed in order to reverse climate change. Yeah. And that's a major point that Alan Savory makes in his TED Talk Regenerative agriculture, similar to A2 milk, is something that kind of new to the market, of course. <laughs> I always have issue with saying it's new because it's <laughs> really just a way of returning to how it once was. Do you see regenerative agriculture as the future of food? I truly do. I had a chance at American Farm Bureau a year and a half ago to give a talk. Um, the American Farm Bureau is a big group, 7,000 people, but we break up into sessions and uh, you know, I titled my talk, Honor Soil, as you would your grandchildren. And, you know, I'm basically talking to conventional farmers in that setting that are uh, across the country. And so a lot of, you know, soybeans and corn being grown. And I believe, truly believe that biologically farming those conventional lands, you don't need to be certified organic, but you need to fully be aware of the biology. Um, it is the solution to higher yields in the future. What farmers across the country have noticed that you know they, they use nitrogen as a, a soil input and a fertilizer, and um, every you know few years they have to put a, apply a little more to get the same yield that they used to get. Um, and and yes, we have yields going up, but I think we also have inputs going up at possibly a faster rate, is my understanding. And I believe that to reverse that trend and to turn that the other way. 
um, having some awareness of the biology and, and paying attention and working with the system that uh, you know nature intended us to work with is truly the solution. And of course, then we need consumers and companies to reward us for that and be willing to pay extra to you know kind of prime the pump and and support the farmers that are doing that. Pay extra, and I think an important thing that needs to be raised about that because if you really look at any kind of new product, new technology, it's always more at first and something that I would see happen over time as, you know, my hope of every product being raised regeneratively is then the cost would go down because that's the standard. Right. Yeah. But then the conversation goes to what is the true cost of food? You know, what is the food that's being produced doing to the environment, to the climate, to to the animals, to the wildlife? And there is a cost to do it the way we do it. There is a cost to having the cows walk and eat the grass but it's a better, more nutrient-dense food, you know, and there's a cost to the yeah. health care on what yeah. people eat. Yeah, so, so the flip side is, you know, I think consumers paying a little extra at the uh, grocery store to get the right food are hopefully going to save a lot of, you know, at the pharmacy yes. and, and not need all the uh, other yeah. supplements and nutritional aids and, and, you know, just doctor care later. And, and, you know, the, the concept of going to the farm instead of the pharmacy is, is absolutely real. And, you know, the general population does not understand that yet. Correct. Yeah. Or we could look at farms like yours as a pharmacy with an F. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yes. So we've talked a lot about your dairy practice and the Alexander eggs, which are marketed as Alexander Kids. Do you have any other plans for expansion and other products being offered by Alexander Farm? Yeah, you know, we're always thinking and dreaming and, you know, we're quite entrepreneurial. And, and so um, we want to do more with this this 100% grass fed that we've got, like we said, bringing it out across the nation, you know, in our carton, uh, that's happening. And the other thing on that would be we're also making some cheese that's currently aging. Oh, we've nice. got a cheddar made with that same green label milk that we're quite excited about. And so, you know, we're hoping that it ages well and, and meets all the standards and we can get it cut and wrapped and out to some people. Um, we expect that to happen here later this year. Another project we're working on would be some a whole line of A2 ice creams. And mm. uh, we're quite excited about that. Yes. The other thing that's been exciting because of our story being out there and being told, we get other brands that call us. So recently a national launch for an A2 infant formula, but it's actually called a toddler formula it's by Serenity Kids, and they put our name on the label as well to give the source of where the milk came from, and it's made with organic A2 milk powder, whole milk powder. So there isn't very many infant formulas that are A2, and certainly not very many that are whole milk, and people we know have been buying infant formula out of Germany just to get that quality, and so now we have one nationwide by Serenity Kids. And they, their whole team was out here getting to know our farm, and they really did their research and stuff. So that's exciting. We, we're talking to coffee companies that want to use our milk. And it's just really exciting to be a part of it, being in conversations with Dr. McCullough's team. There's a lot of neat things going on. Yeah, and, and I, I would also just add on that, you know, we are part of producing some A2 powders that hopefully are working their way into other products. Uh, we, we've got a few chocolate companies using our powdered milk for their high-end specialty chocolates. Craft chocolates. Uh, yeah, craft chocolates. We also, through Azure Standards, uh, people can get our products um, and, and 
you know, we've got consumers in Tennessee, for instance, with their young kids uh, that had a lot of issues that are, you know, on dairy again because they're buying our powdered milk through that Azure Standard Group. And so there's different ways to get to A2 products, and uh, we hope we can continue to make it easier. We just love the phone call we got from a mom from Tennessee where she said her eight-year-old son who can't do dairy drank our dairy and said, Mommy, this is heaven in a jug. I love that too. And I look forward to seeing more of your products that you're talking about hit the market and we'll certainly be glad to promote them on my blog and my social media. We're just about out of time, but before we go, is there any last information you'd like to let the listeners know about Alexander Farm? I think one thing I'd like people to know is we live in one of the poorest counties of California. And so for our family, it's not about a new car or a bigger house. It's about better foods for more people and better foods how we produce it, why we produce it is really important to us and based so we do him and hope that we can serve him well. Yeah, and I would close with you know a message to your followers that you know you can trust us, you can trust the Alexanders to do the right thing at every turn. That's basically our you know kind of core principle that helps us make decisions every day. Excellent. And let the listeners know where they can find Alexander Farm on the web. It's Alexandre Family Farm. And then on our website, we have a store locator and you type in your zip code and you can find where you can find us. But nationwide, we are available through AzureStandard.com and also all Whole Foods. And then hopefully, if you can't find it near you, go to a local health food store and they can get it through KEHI National Distribution and UNFI. So ask your grocer to start carrying our product. Excellent. Blake, Stephanie, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Thank you. A pleasure yeah. and honor to talk to you again, Aaron. We love what you're doing out there and look forward to seeing you at the next show or Weston A. Price Conference. Oh, yes. Look forward to seeing you there, too. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are now released every Wednesday. Next week, I interview dietitian Laura Poe Mathis as we discuss gut health. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed. 